What's my most favorite thing to do? To talk. Every week I'll do just that. We'll feature national and international movers and shakers, experts in their fields, and all-around interesting people with something more than great to say. No holds barred. We'll tackle every topic imaginable, especially for women over 40. This is Conversations with Sima. Please stay tuned. Today we'll be talking with a writer, editor, speaker, author, and nationally recognized authority on women, families, and changing gender roles. Suzanne Braun Levine was the first editor of Ms. Magazine and the first woman to edit the Columbia Journalism Review. She now frequently talks, speaks, and writes about her new life that would be second adulthood and that of the lives of people in midlife and older. She is the author of the e-books, Can Men Have It All?, What the Daddy Track Means for Women, and You Gotta Have Friends. The book 50 is the new 50, how we love now and inventing the rest of our lives, and Father Courage, what happens when men put family first. So welcome, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with your take on the direction of the country and what you feel about where we are as a society and maybe the current administration. (laughs) Well, I'm as depressed as the next person, and I am as scared for our democracy as the next person. And like all of us, I spent maybe a month or six weeks where I could barely gather my thoughts. But the Women's March, I think, was a turning point for all of us. You know, we were all sort of in our caves feeling that so much had been lost, we would never be able to muster the energy to keep going, that the country was really in danger. But we were all sort of in our own caves. You know, it's one of the things about the women's movement that it's always better to know that you are not the only one and you're not crazy. This was the case with family violence, with abortion, with so many of the issues that for so long women were keeping to themselves. So I think that sharing experience of the march combined with the pent-up energy that at the time was fury, and combined with a whole new group of women ready to roll up their sleeves, I think that that's going to make the big difference. Not only we tired old feminists who don't want to give up, and not only the really feisty young ones, but there's a whole group in between. I think they're the women who benefited from what we did in the 60s and 70s, and then cashed in on it, not in a bad way, but they made great careers, they built egalitarian families, they contributed to their community, but they didn't consider them activists. I think those women are going to be the ones who run for office, who organize the protests, because their kids are pretty much out of the way if they have kids. Their careers are pretty solid. Hopefully their marriages are too. And they have the new, the the sort of sense of discovery that will energize them and all the rest of us. So overall, I think we are at an important turning point that could be not for the best, but that we can make the best of where we are. 
I'd like to go back to the original work that you started, and I'd like to get a better understanding about you. Where did you come up with this sense of indignancy, maybe, if that's the correct word, passion for pushing forward women's rights and equal pay? Let's go back to, say, the 50s or 60s. What in your background provided this for you? And what compelled you to keep going in the face of a lot of adversity or pushback, correct? Yes. <laughs> well, I am your classic 50s good girl. I started out way at the back of the line. My mission in life was to be liked. I did everything I was told. I did, read all the books on the reading list. And I basically was headed on to a uh, very predictable life. There were a few flashes, however. Looking back, I see, became sort of guiding light. One was that I was a big tomboy, and I loved sports, and I kept running up against girl sports. I loved basketball, and we had to play half court. If you had your period, you couldn't play at all. When I went to college, there were no teens. And that sort of simmering resentment was so liberated when Title IX came along. And I've been watching Title IX change the world for young women. Uh, and that's been tremendously satisfying. But basically, I was a sort of pink girl to the extent that when I went to work at my first day at Ms., I wore a pink silk blouse, a pink cashmere pencil skirt with a girdle, and stockings and shoes. You can imagine how out of place I was because we were working off of orange crates and desks with three legs. I was a very traditional person. What brought me to Ms. was that I loved magazine journalism. So I basically came in through the I know how to put out a magazine route. Others came in, you know, from the civil rights movement, the women's movement, a lot of other directions. But it was no question that working at Ms. with those dedicated, smart, fearless women really changed the direction of my life. And some of it rubbed off on me. I'm still not as fearless as I would like to be. Uh, but I know what I think, and I'll fight for it. So if the Miz, if Miz hadn't come into my life, I think I'd be a very different person. I'm guessing that must have been really unbelievably exciting. You must have had a strong sense that there's something afoot here and that you may be on to something that is much greater than what you see in front of you. True? Yes. But I don't think anybody realized how big it was. In those very first 10 or 15 years, it was as if all of the changes were self-evident. And that once it became clear that there shouldn't be help-wanted male, help-wanted female ads, that women shouldn't have to get permission from their husband to take out a loan, when those inequities became clear, I think the expectation was that then everybody would say, oh my goodness, we have to fix that. Even though at the same time there was a lot of fierce 
backlash. Sometimes I'd go to a cocktail party or something, and I wouldn't want to tell them where I worked because I just wanted to be left alone. But nevertheless, it looked like we were on a good trajectory. But I know that you didn't shirk the opportunities to be in the public eye either, correct? I did as much as I could Mm -hmm. because that's not where I'm most comfortable. But I think because what we were talking about mattered so much to us, I mean, Gloria has written about how hard it was for her to become a speaker. And I was thinking about that at the Women's March when she gave such a spectacular speech, that the fact that she overcame that fear of speaking was important to her and to the rest of the world. I think what took us out there, if we, if we went out there, was that it mattered so much. And did you have a sense of what you hoped you could personally accomplish at that point? You know, Sima, I think we were so busy that the days were so full of decisions and problem solving and laughing and meeting deadlines. I don't think there was a long-term vision that any of us had privately. There was certainly the long-term vision for the women's movement. But I just, if anything, I just loved being good at my job. And moving forward, say, 10 or 20 years, maybe to, say, the 80s or 90s, how did you see this movement, your group, and yourself evolve? Well, I think that the turning point was uh, the Houston Conference, which you may remember. Yes. In 1977, which was... The, the uh, a sort of a preview of the women's march last last January. Women from all over the country gathered in Houston and ironed out differences on so many issues. They produced a platform that was like a Bible of progress. People argued, they changed their minds. Betty Friedan, who had called lesbians the lavender menace, managed to turn around and vote in support of their plank. So I think that that was the high point. That was when it looked as though we had sort of crossed the Rubicon. Then came Phyllis Schlafly, um, who really played an important role in bringing together women who were afraid of the women's movement and um, basically defeating the Equal Rights Amendment. Right. And when that, you know, the first, I forget how many, 25 states uh, passed it without a, a, a blink, she managed to really undermine the support in enough other states so that it didn't pass. And that closed one chapter, I think, the chapter I've been talking about, of feeling as though we were on the right track and we were headed in the right direction. I have the good fortune to see, with wisdom and age, that the pendulum always swings back in 
the other direction, almost like a seesaw. Mm-hmm. So if you think that you've gone all the way to the left, you are going to go all the way to the right. But somewhere it's going to sort of find the gravitational pull that will find its sort of middle ground. Did you see that era in that way? I think that it began in the 90s and, the, the you know, the turn of the century. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> it did appear that the victories, the ground that we had broken was solidifying and that it wasn't all uh, big headlines, but that women were entering the workforce, entering careers, talking back to the male establishment, uh, doing sports. I really believe that made a big difference. And it seemed that what was happening was that for the moment the pendulum wasn't swinging, but that we were building on what we had achieved. And I think that's why this election was such a shock, because it's, it's like people should reconcile themselves to the idea it was going to be slow, steady progress, and that we were going to confront backlash that we could handle. The election brought out all of the hostility, fear, resentment of women that have been underground. So in a way, that's a good thing, because if we can now deal with it and put that attitude to rest, or at least put it back into a minority, um, I think we'll be better off, because if we didn't know it was there, it could always emerge. Knowing it's there, we can deal with it, I hope. We're talking today with writer, editor, speaker, and author Suzanne Braun-Levine. Suzanne, the topic that we're talking about now makes me think about my own take on what's happening in the administration and in our in our country. And it almost feels like an unruly octopus. So <laughs> if if I take what you just said, which was these issues are still there and now they're being brought to the forefront, the problem is like the octopus tentacles, you know, one day one tentacle comes up, the other day the next one comes up. And ultimately that octopus is incredibly out of balance. What's your thought on that? I agree. I, I tell you, though, Two things occurred to me this morning when I was thinking of talking to you. One is that we have to remember that it took 72 years for the women's suffrage movement to get the vote. And many of the leaders didn't even live to see that day. Social change is a very, very slow process. The other thing, I think, is that what people are looking at now with this sort of mixed bag of um, agenda items that the the new women's march group seems to be dealing with, I think that's a good thing because, as you say, we've got this octopus. And if groups of women focus on the particular tentacle that is most threatening to them, that they care most about. We won't look coordinated, but I think we'll be more effective. 
All right, let's uh, shift gears for a little bit. We have about 10 minutes left, and I'd like to talk to you about you. So tell me, what are some of the things that help sustain you in your life, such as marriage or friends or religion, spirituality? What what kept you Certainly grounded? friends. Mm-hmm. There's no question. Um, and I think that's one of the big contributions of the women's movement uh, is to foster a kind of trusting relationship between women. My mother had no friends because she was a very pretty woman, and she thought every other woman was competition. Mm. So she didn't trust anybody. The kind of trust that women can build, the kind of trust that I have with, you know, my posse, whatever you want to call it, have really made all the difference even it made a lot of the difference in my marriage i think if you're in a transitional stage in history and one of the things that's transitioning is the institution of marriage you need all the friends you can get i have to tell you that last sunday was are you ready for this Oh. Our 50th wedding. I knew you were going to say, oh, <laughs> that's so great. Well, it's incomprehensible of course. to me. Yes. But I, ha- I have always maintained that the first 37 were the hardest. Oh, no, please. I think when I'm done, I will have added more years on to that 37, but I'm with you. <laughs> It's not easy. No. And certainly it's not easy when you went into a relationship with a fairly conventional understanding of what marriage was. Mm -hmm. And then were night and day involved with uh, people and issues that were dedicated to transforming it. It ain't easy. Well, and I have to say, you must have to give credit to your husband that he was also able to stay with you. I don't mean stay married to you, but keep pace with you, given the hectic pace of your lives and now our lives now and the the, uh, efforts that you made toward the women's movement. I can imagine another person could have been left in the dust. Well, you're very smart to point that out. A lot of people just say, oh, he's a man, so he didn't get it. But you're absolutely right. He evolved with me. He came to be friends with uh, a lot of the women who I admire and was friends with. And just practical terms, he basically never once complained that he had to carry the load of our finances. Mm -hmm. I never... I, I don't even want to tell you what I made at Ms., but it was certainly not a living wage. And he supported me all the way from, you know, oh, you have to be out tonight, that's fine, go get him, to uh, bringing home the bacon. That's so, wonderful. Uh, he, he's really special. If you're lacking that, though, you're welcome to come to my house anytime <laughs> because this is a regular discussion, but, but I'm offering that just for the future. Okay. So what else became important to you? Your religion, your spirituality? Is there something else that kept you grounded? Any daily practices like yoga or meditation? Well, 
uh, get to the spiritual thing in a minute. I have to point out that having two children over the age, when you're over the age of 40 is pretty grounding in I, itself. I, I share your, your pain, yes. Mm-hmm. But I do practice yoga, and we spend a lot of time in the country. It used to be weekends, now it's almost four days a week, where I feel a real wonder at nature. I look out sometimes and I think, you know, I see a bug or um, I see a mouse the other day that my cats killed. And I look at all the little parts of those creatures and it's awesome. Yep, it sure is. It's it's miraculous when you look at it like that. It's beyond understanding. It is. So I guess... For me, that's a sort that's a sort of religious experience, and I I would be very uncomfortable not having access uh, to nature to keep me going. And how about your spirituality? What else? Well, I think it's nature. Mm-hmm. Main, you know, I am I am not a practicing person. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm, probably don't believe in God, but I do believe in nature, and I do believe in um, not necessarily the basic goodness of people, but the capacity of goodness that people have, and the support and pleasure and love people can give each other. Mm -hmm. What do you see for yourself in the next decade? Is there any work left for you that you would like to accomplish? I would like to accomplish continuing to do work. I'm now working on a project for the Cerebral Palsy Foundation about the ways in which women with disabilities have such a hard time in the medical system. I think I'll always be looking for ways to use my skills to right wrongs. Mm-hmm. and to use words. If there were nothing else, that's been the most consistent principle in my life, that there's a right word for everything, and you have to look for it and get pleasure for finding it. I mean, I still edit my emails. I even edit my texts. That's great. So I think that's been an important beacon in my life. And is there anything about being in your later stage of life, at least over 50, but in midlife, is there anything about it that is surprising to you or is least pleasurable? Do you have any, <laughs> do you have any feeling on either side of that coin? Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I found being in my 50s and 60s a great surprise and a great burst of energy and confidence and um, what I've called in my books the few 50s. This just sense that um, I don't care what people think. I know what I think. And that was, I I think that those years may have been the, the best in my life. I felt most real and most effective. What's been um, a surprise is that that doesn't necessarily go on. 
that when you get into your 70s, uh, you're in a very different place, and you're sort of taking stock and making peace with things and laughing your head off about the indignities of aging. Yeah. Um, but it is different. I, I'm about to give a talk to a group of women, and I realize I can't do my uh, 50 is the new 50 talk uh, mm-hmm. because I'm somewhere else now. Sure. And um, I don't. I I don't know how I would talk about somewhere else. I'm still very grateful for this moment in my life and for the, where my life is now. But it is different. And what do you hope your legacy will be? Or do you care? <laughs> well, that's a better question. Yeah. I'm not sure I care that much. Huh. I... I I feel that I've, I, you know, the Jewish thing that when you die, you don't go to heaven, but you live on in the memories that people have of you. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I am in terms of my legacy. And, and some of those people are the people who came up to me after I gave a talk and said you were so inspiring. Or some of the people are my children. Sure. Or my friends. I think that's that's the legacy I would hope for. And do you have any final thoughts for the listener? I think our mantra has to be, we will never give up. And I think that pertains to individual lives um, and to uh, the women's movement. I think when I was young and well-behaved, I gave up too often. You know, it didn't seem seemly, or it didn't, I did, maybe I was wrong, you know, all of that. I think not giving up on every front uh, that matters to you. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't be pig headed, but hanging in there, I think, is, is important for us at every age. We've been talking today with the inestimable pioneer and women's activist, writer, author, speaker, Suzanne Braun-Levine. Suzanne can be found at SuzanneBraunLevine.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been my honor and my pleasure. Well, I have to thank you for the wonderful question. I'm Sima Shapiro, your host of For Women Over 40, Conversations with Sima. Thank you so much to the listener for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you take care.